Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This has been our, um, our passage for this uh, short series we've been in called Can We Really Trust the Bible? This is the third week of that series. We're actually going to wrap it up today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let me pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for this time that we get to come together, that we get to exalt your name, that we get to lift our eyes off of ourselves and place them on you, God, and that we can see you for who you are. I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, give us understanding, give us revelation, enlighten us, God and drive deeper and deeper and deeper our confidence in the holy scriptures that you have given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the third and final week of our series called Can We Really Trust the Bible? And what we're doing is addressing the question, why do we as Christians trust that the Bible is the word of God? Like what good reasons do we have for this Belief. Now, I'm primarily speaking to us as Christians. This is not primarily addressing unbelievers who don't, who don't believe in Jesus, don't follow Jesus. I'm not primarily addressing unbelievers, although, as I've said, I think throughout the series, there are many compelling reasons that we will be sharing for unbelievers um, to come to the faith that the Bible is the word of God. But I'm primarily addressing us as believers and the confidence that we should have that the Bible is the word of God. What good reasons do we have? In the first two weeks, we covered six of them. Let me bring you up to speed. Um, We gave six reasons why we believe the Bible is the word of God. Number one, the direct claims of the Bible. So the Bible itself clearly claims to be the word of God. This is not a later invention that we are, or something external that we are kind of forcing onto the Bible. Uh, It's a teaching that comes from the Bible itself. The Bible itself claims to be the word of God. So we believe the Bible's word of God because of number one, the direct claims of the Bible. Number two, the perfect unity of the Bible. We're talking about 66 different books written over a period of some 15 to 1600 years by over 40 different human authors on three different continents, writing in three different languages, in in different life circumstances, writing in different literary genres from different places and on and on and on. And yet in the middle of all that diversity, The Bible tells one unified story of redemptive history. The only way to account for such unity amongst all that diversity is to say that God himself is the author of the sacred text. Number three, the reliable transmission 
of the Bible. We saw a couple weeks ago that the Bible has not been passed down to us like a bad game of telephone, as some would claim. That, oh, we can't trust it now because, you know, how do we know that what we have now is what was written? And what we saw is that the Bible has been transmitted to us with jaw-dropping accuracy. That what we have now is what the Holy Spirit inspired. And we can trust that. Number four, the historical accuracy of the Bible. This is what we started to cover last week. That time and time again, the Bible has proven to be historically accurate, even in the face of skepticism and opposition originally. That, oops, wait a second, the, the skeptics were proven wrong, and the Bible has proven to be historically accurate over and over again. And archaeology keeps bringing continued confirmation of the historical accuracy of the Bible. We gave several examples of that last week. Last week, we also talked about number five, the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Even in the face of constant criticism, the Bible has repeatedly proven to be scientifically accurate, many times describing and explaining processes in the natural world long before the science ever discovered them or understood them. We gave plenty of examples of that last week also. The last thing we covered last week was number six, the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. This, to me, is one of the most compelling evidences of the divine origin of the scriptures. We saw that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy regarding the Messiah, except for those which concern events that have yet to take place. In the scriptures, we see that there are about 2,500 prophecies in scripture, and more than 2,000 of them have been fulfilled to the letter. The remaining 500 or so all deal with the last days and end times. Some major 3,000 plus year old biblical prophecies fulfilled as recently as 1948 and 1967. Fascinating. No other book in history can make that claim. So today we're going to close with four more reasons. Those are the first six We believe the Bible is the word of God because of the direct claims of the Bible, the perfect unity of the Bible, the reliable transmission of the Bible, the historical accuracy of the Bible, the scientific accuracy of the Bible, the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible, and here's number seven, the external corroboration of the Bible. We'll correct spelling later, okay? The external corroboration of the Bible. So we've already seen in this series that the testimony of the Bible itself is solid and stands on its own merits. But is there anything outside of the Bible, any historically trustworthy sources which corroborate the testimony of the Bible in any way? And the fact is there are several, but let me just give you two, two prominent ones. The first would be Josephus, okay? Who is Josephus? Josephus was a first century Jewish historian commissioned by Rome. Now, for those of you who are counting, that is two reasons for him to be biased and to write unfavorably about Jesus. A Jewish man commissioned by Romans to write history, okay? Now, fortunately for us, Josephus was a historian with integrity who was concerned with accurately recording events, And he wrote a few things which soundly corroborate the scriptures, including writings which confirm the existence of John the Baptist, the baptisms that he performed, his unjust execution by Herod, and which provide an important connection between his writings, the chronology of the gospels, and the dates for the ministry of Jesus. 
okay? In his manuscript called The Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapter 3, he wrote about Jesus. Now, let me give you some background. The Bible says that Jesus was accused by the Jewish people of blasphemy. That is, he claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be God, okay? They said that's blasphemy. So he was accused by the Jewish people of blasphemy. The Bible says that he was convicted and that his execution was overseen by a Roman official named Pontius Pilate, okay? That's what the Bible teaches. Now, let's look at what Josephus wrote in a passage that has come to be called the Testimonium Flavianum, meaning the testimony of Flavius Josephus. He says this, and I think I have it in your notes. Quote, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when, among the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. End quote. Now, in full disclosure, some scholars dispute the authenticity of parts of this passage. They argue that, yes, Josephus wrote the core of this testimony, but that certain phrases were added later by Christians. And just to help you out, I've included those phrases in bold. So if you see the, that, the passage there, you see the bold passage, those are that, the parts that are in bold are, are under dispute by some scholars. Okay? But here's what I want you to see, and here's why I've included this for you is that even in the undisputed portion of this testimony, we have a first century historian confirming and corroborating the existence of Jesus, the fact that he was considered to be a wise man, the fact that he performed miracles, that he was a teacher of the truth, that he won over many Jews and Greeks, that he was accused by the Jews, condemned by Pilate, crucified on a cross, and that Christianity wasn't squashed right after the crucifixion, but that the disciples actually claimed that they had seen him resurrected from the dead on the third day and continued to endure in that belief, and that all of this had been foretold by the Old Testament prophets. This by a first century Jewish historian commissioned by Rome. Powerful external corroboration of everything that was taught in the Bible regarding that. Just as the Bible had said, Josephus confirms those facts. Let me give you a second one, Tacitus. Tacitus was a senator and historian who lived between A.D. 56 and A.D. 120. He's widely considered to be one of the greatest Roman historians, and he writes about Jesus in his work entitled Annals, which was written in about A.D. 116. Historian Ronald Meller called the Annals, quote, Tacitus' crowning achievement, and said that it represents, quote, the pinnacle of Roman historical writing, end quote. So Tacitus is no slouch as a historian. That's what he's getting at. Okay? Scholars today, they go back to Josephus, they go back to Tacitus on, on almost every other matter. Okay? Scholars generally consider Tacitus' reference to the execution of Jesus to be both authentic and of historical value as an independent Roman source. It is a firmly established non-Christian confirmation of the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay? We say non-Christian because as we read the quote, you're going to see that he is obviously not a fan of Christians. 
Okay? Now let me give you some background before we read his excerpt. In July of AD 64, there was a six-day great fire that burned much of Rome. The exact cause of the fire remains uncertain, but much of the Roman population suspected that Emperor Nero had started the fire himself. And so that, that belief began to kind of spread and grow. And so to divert attention from himself, Nero accused the Christians of starting the fire and persecuted them for it. So this passage comes just after Tacitus has described that fire and the accusation against Nero that he had started it himself. And this is what we read from Tacitus. Quote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. End quote. Wow. Okay, you can clearly tell he's not a fan of Christians. Okay. But he says a mischievous superstition was checked for a moment, but then broke out again, not only in Judea, but it spread even to Rome. What superstition is he talking about? He's talking about the belief that Christ had risen from the dead. So it was checked for a moment, but then it began to spread. Now, here is a non-Christian, clearly non-Christian, early historian who corroborates the existence of Jesus, the fact that he was called the Christ, that he suffered and was executed during the reign of Tiberius, just like the Bible says, under the oversight of Pilate, and that after Jesus was crucified, things seemed to be in check for a moment, but soon the belief that Jesus had risen from the grave began to spread throughout Judea and all the way to Rome, just as the Bible records. All of this corroborates the testimony of the Bible about these Events And listen, there are many, many, many other examples. These are two prominent ones. Time prohibits us to go into all of them. But Josephus and Tacitus are widely considered to be two of the most trustworthy historians in ancient history. And this is their corroborating testimony of Christ and what the scriptures teach. So yes, there is sufficient external corroboration for the gospel accounts of the Bible from outside of the Bible. Number eight. Number eight, why do we believe that the Bible is the word of God? The Lord's testimony of the Bible. The Lord's testimony of the Bible. Now here's why this is important because, and this is what I said at the beginning of this series and why I'm speaking to Christians primarily because, because there is teaching, false teaching that has spread within the church that you can somehow, that, that, that you can be this Christian who holds very loosely to the scriptures. That the scriptures are, eh, just follow Jesus, right? And so some Christians claim that they, that, yeah, I follow Jesus, but they don't believe the Bible is the word of God or that it has any authority. And they say things like, listen, stop making so much of the scriptures and just focus on the example of Jesus, bro. As if you have any idea what Jesus is like or how he feels or what he thinks about an issue aside from the Bible. How do you know what Jesus is like? Yes, from personal experience, but how do I judge your personal experience over and against my personal experience unless we have an objective source by which to judge those experiences? 
How do you know what Jesus, how do I follow Jesus aside from knowing what he desires for my life from the scriptures? How do I do that? You go, oh, don't make so much of the scriptures, bro. Just follow Jesus. Okay, let's do that. What does Jesus say about the Bible? Right. <laughs> let's do that. Let's follow the example of Jesus and see what Jesus says about the Bible. Let me give you a couple passages. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's talking about the scriptures, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? No, okay. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay? The, the word iota there in the Greek is iota. Okay? <laughs> and in the Hebrew, it's the word yod, Y-O-D, okay? And it, here's what it refers to. It refers to the smallest of all of the letters in the alphabet. Not an iota. This is not even the smallest of all letters in the alphabet. The word dots is not an iota, not a dot. The word dot refers to one of the smallest strokes of the pen, like, like, like our comma or our period, like dot. So what Jesus is saying here is that until heaven and earth pass away, which has not happened yet, not one tiny letter or even the smallest dot of the pen in scripture will become void until all is accomplished, all is fulfilled. So Jesus is testifying to the present right now authority of the scripture. He says, no, I didn't come to abolish this. I came to fulfill it. And until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or even stroke of a pen of scripture is going to be void until all is fulfilled. It holds, it stands. Jesus is affirming the present authority of scripture. I like Jesus' example when it comes to this issue. Let's look at another passage, John chapter 10, verses 31 through 36. It's telling another story, but it gives us some helpful clues as to how Jesus feels about the scriptures. It says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them. Now listen to this. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Okay, I hope you caught what happened there. Jesus does two very important things here in this passage. First, he identifies scripture as the word of God. Look at verse 35 again. He uses the term scripture and word of God interchangeably, right? He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. So Jesus uses the terms scripture and word of God interchangeably because the scriptures are the word of God. So second, he says that scripture cannot be set aside or other translations say scripture cannot be broken or scripture doesn't lie. So according to Jesus, this is Jesus's testimony about the scriptures. According to Jesus, the scriptures are the word of God and they cannot be set aside. It's important to note that it's Jesus himself making these distinctions. 
So to be a Christian who maintains the claim that Scripture is not the Word of God or that it no longer has authority, you must be willing to say that Jesus was wrong. You must be willing to say, no, 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 I'm right. Jesus was mistaken. Or Jesus was an error. Because he clearly and openly affirmed the divine nature and binding authority of the Scripture as God's Word. So when we look at the Lord's own testimony of the Bible. He says, here's what the Bible is. It's the word of God and it cannot be broken. It cannot be set aside until heaven and earth pass away. Not even the smallest letter or stroke of a pen will, will be void until all is fulfilled. Number nine. The disciples' testimony of the Bible. The disciples' testimony of the Bible. In their writings, the disciples claim to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So the scriptures that we have are written mostly by people who were eyewitnesses, especially New Testament, eyewitnesses of the glory of God, eyewitnesses of the things to which the scriptures testify. Look at 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. This is John writing. This is powerful. He's writing to maybe a second generation of Christians who maybe themselves hadn't seen for the, with their own eyes the risen Christ, hadn't experienced for themselves. This, this, this is the first generation that has received it by faith, having been kind of passed down to them. And here's what John is saying to them. He's trying to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. And so he begins his letter this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So after Jesus was risen from the grave, Scripture tells us that he spent 40 days with his disciples. Not four hours or even 40 hours. 40 days eating with them and talking with them and walking with them and spending time with them. Too much time to just call it an emotional hallucination. Oh, you were so grieved over the death of Jesus that you imagined you had this moment, you had this weekend, you had this four-hour experience of just sorrow where you hallucinated and thought you saw the risen Christ. I'm so sorry for your grief. No, 40 days, 40 days in different settings, in different places together, not isolated, together eating and talking and walking and spending time with Jesus. And so John, having experienced that, says, we've heard this with our own ears. We've seen it with our own eyes and touched with our own hands, the truth that we testify and proclaim to you. This is not secondhand information that I'm giving you guys. These scriptures, this truth that we're expounding here by the Holy Spirit is firsthand eyewitness Testimony. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. If I'm allowed to have a favorite disciple, it might be Peter, because I see so much of myself in this knucklehead. But he makes this bold statement. Remember, Peter, Peter was the one who denied Christ. He denied Christ in front of a little girl at a, when, when Christ is taken to be tried and crucified. And then 
A short while later, he's proclaiming Christ, even though it might cost him his life, in front of thousands of people. What changed for Peter? He saw Jesus risen from the dead, gave him a little bit of confidence. Look what he writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This was not secondhand info they were passing on. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first and primary importance what I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is direct eyewitness testimony to the things which they testify of in the scriptures, to the truthfulness of God's word, and some of it from former skeptics. James, we are told in scripture, did not believe that Jesus was the Christ until he saw him risen from the grave. Paul, the very one who's writing this, used to be known as Saul of Tarsus, the one who persecuted the church and dragged off Christians and threw them in prison and oversaw their execution. What changed for him? He saw Jesus alive from the dead. Uh Uh-oh, I was wrong. I was wrong. I saw him with my own eyes, and so now I'm testifying to you. Some people go, oh, these are are just hallucinations. Really, all of these people? He appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Tell me another case where 500 plus people have a mass hallucination of the same thing at the same time. And he says, do you see this? Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He says, most of them are still alive. Go Go check up on me. This is direct eyewitness testimony to the truthfulness of God's word. These guys are saying, we're eyewitnesses. Now, were they telling the truth? How can we check? Well, one way to check that out is to apply what we could call the honesty test. That is, did the writers also include in their writings any kind of embarrassing details about themselves? Here's why this is important. It's important because it would demonstrate that they were more concerned with recording the truth as God gave it to them than they were with writing an awesome biography about themselves, right? If I was going to make something up and write a story about myself, I'd probably leave out all the bad parts, okay? Especially if I was doing it to kind of just gain social clout, which Christianity did not give them, okay? And the reality is there are plenty of examples of them including embarrassing information about themselves in the scriptures. What about the fact that Jesus calls Peter Satan? Get behind me, Satan. Now, if, if Jesus said that to my friend, I might not include that if I was trying to kind of get some political or societal clout. What about the fact that Jesus asked his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and came back twice and found them sleeping? They tell us this, right? What about the fact that they abandoned Jesus in the moment of his trial and crucifixion? We see one following at a distance, What about the fact that the one who follows at a distance, Peter, ends up denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows? 
What about the fact that they argued about who was the greatest among them and fought for positions of prominence in Jesus' kingdom? That's an embarrassing fact that they include. The list goes on and on and on and on. They passed the honesty test. But what about the devotion test? How committed were they to the truth that they proclaimed? This is important because a person may make something up and convince everybody else that it's true, but they don't usually make something up that makes them unpopular or causes them to be persecuted. You tracking with me? So if I'm going to make something up to gain some social clout, I'm not going to make something up that does the exact opposite and makes me a hunted, persecuted, wanted person that makes me lose all my social clout. And they're certainly not usually willing to suffer or die for that lie, right? If they made it up. And the fact is, the disciples were willing to suffer tremendously for their conviction that this is the truth, that they had seen Jesus alive from the dead and that his word is true. Let's look at just one example. This is Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. He says, are they servants of Christ? There's a whole context here. I wish I could get into it, but I just want to get out the sufferings that he went through, okay? Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman here. He says, but listen to how he describes his experience following Jesus. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's 39 lashes, five different times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Beaten with rods included being hung upside down by your feet and taking a metal rod and bringing it down on your feet, breaking almost every bone in your foot. Most people can never walk the same again. After that, he says, that happened to me three times. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, that's a fun one, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And we must remember that Paul wrote many of his New Testament letters from prison, from prison. All of this is his experience after he began to follow Jesus. And why did he begin to follow Jesus? Because he met Jesus face to face as he was on his way to persecute Christians for that same belief. Oh, you saw Jesus alive from the dead? That's heresy. We're going to have you imprisoned and killed, and I'm going to be the one to lead the charge. And as he's on his way to Damascus to lead that charge, guess who appears to him? Christ. And then Jesus says to Ananias, he says, go, go to Paul. Go to Paul. I want to show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Why would Paul endure all of that? Why would the other disciples be willing to endure and suffer such things for something that wasn't true? And beyond suffering, they were willing to die for this. They chose to be executed instead of recant. Church history tells us that Paul was eventually tortured and beheaded. 
tells us that Matthias was stoned and then beheaded for his faith, that Barnabas was stoned to death, that Jude was killed with arrows, that Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear, that Bartholomew was flayed to death by a whip, that James was thrown over 100 feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple, and when he survived that fall, he was beaten to death with a club. That Peter was crucified upside down because he told his tormentors that he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior. That Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross, and as he was led to the cross, church history tells us that he said, quote, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it. That John was boiled in oil, and when that didn't kill him, he was exiled to the barren island of Patmos, from where he wrote the book of Revelation. Most of these disciples were given the opportunity to deny their claims, to deny the truth that they were exposing in Scripture, espousing in Scripture, and deny that and you can live. But they all said, you're going to have to kill me because it's true. It's true, and I'm willing to die for this truth. Now, I know, as you do, that tons of people die for a lie. Tons of people die. Think of terrorists. They die for a lie. Many other people in many other contexts die for a lie. I understand that. The kicker here is that nobody dies for something they know is a lie. And the, the, the clincher is this. If this was a lie, these were the guys who knew it. If this is not true, these are the ones who knew it. If they didn't see Christ risen from the dead, if, if the things that they're writing and saying here are not true, they're the ones that know it. So maybe after your third beating with rods, you go, ah, man, I better give up this lie. Maybe as you're going to face your execution and they say, listen, recant your story, recant this testament, deny the truthfulness of what you're espousing here and we'll let you live. And they go, no, you're going to have to kill me because it's true. It's true. By speaking so honestly about themselves and by proving that they were willing to suffer and even die for the gospel, the disciples testified to the absolute truth of God's word. Tenth and finally, the amazing indestructibility of the Bible. The amazing indestructibility of the Bible. No other book has been so attacked throughout history as the Bible has. That's just a fact. No other book has been so attacked or maligned or opposed throughout history as the Bible has. And the fact that the Bible has endured and even spread despite the most intense efforts to stamp it out is evidence of the sovereign hand of God on this book. Isaiah chapter 40, verses seven and eight. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, and the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What about Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 24, verse 35? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we're even told that the word of God will play a vital role in the end times judgment. This is crazy, but look at, look at John chapter 12, verse 48. Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus is the one here saying this. So what is the example of Jesus? Jesus said that on the day of judgment, people will be judged by the word of God. The word of God will endure the word of God has endured and will continue to endure because God himself has promised to preserve and protect it. And it's certainly faced its attacks. Let me give you a couple of things real quick. For many years, Christianity was outlawed by the Roman government. And from about AD 98 until Constantine began to reign in about AD 300, virtually every one of the Roman emperors was opposed to Christianity. And many of their efforts were directed toward destroying the Bible. The ruler just before Constantine was a guy named Diocletian. Raise your hand if you've heard of Diocletian. Okay? This guy issued an edict that was spread everywhere, which commanded that all the churches were to be leveled to the ground and the scriptures were to be destroyed by fire. He went on to say that if anyone was discovered to have a copy of the scriptures that he had not surrendered to be burned, he should be killed. And beyond that, if anyone knew of someone else who had a copy of the scriptures and didn't report that, he would also be killed. And after this edict had been enforced for two years, Diocletian boasted, quote, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth, end quote. History tells us that the very next emperor, Constantine, became a Christian. And he requested that copies of the scriptures be made for all the churches. Problem is, Diocletian has completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. Constantine suspected otherwise, and so he offered a substantial reward for a copy of the scriptures. And within 25 hours, 50 copies of the Bible were brought to him. <laughs> Diocletian failed, and the word of God endured. Let me give you another one. The French philosopher Voltaire, a skeptic who destroyed the faith of many people, made his own attempt to destroy the Bible. And he made the bold prediction that within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity would have been swept from existence. Voltaire died in 1778, and obviously his prediction failed. In fact, this is crazy. In fact, the irony of the whole thing is that not long after his death, the Geneva Bible Society moved into his former house and used his printing presses to print thousands of Bibles. Wow. 
Not only had the Bible not been destroyed within a hundred years, but it was being printed out of his former home. Wayne Jackson said, men come and go, generations vanish, but the holy scriptures march on triumphantly. Sidney Collette said, we might as well put our shoulder to the burning wheel of the sun and try to stop it on its flaming course as attempt to stop the circulation of the Bible. Harry Rimmer said, men have died on the gallows for reading it and have been burned at the stake for owning it. Tortures too fiendish to describe have been visited upon delicate women and tender children for looking on its pages. Yet, in spite of the strongest forces that hell could unleash and in the face of the animosity of tyrants and despots, there are more Bibles in the earth today than there are copies of any other book ever written by the hand of man. God keeps his promise to preserve his word. It has endured every attack and opposition until now, and it will endure every attack it faces today, and it will endure every attack it may face in the future. Not one letter or one dot of God's word will fail. People and their opinions, kings and kingdoms, ages and seasons, cultural preferences and societal pressures will come and go. They will change like the leaves of a tree. The word of God will endure forever. And so we believe the Bible is the word of God because of the direct claims of the Bible the perfect unity of the Bible, the reliable transmission of the Bible, the historical accuracy of the Bible, the scientific accuracy of the Bible, the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible, the external corroboration of the Bible, the Lord's testimony of the Bible, the disciples' testimony of the Bible, and the amazing indestructibility of the Bible. So, to answer our question, can we really trust the Bible? The answer is a resounding yes. We can absolutely trust the Bible because it is the word of God and God keeps his word. Amen? Father God, we thank you so much for our time. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the sacred scriptures, Father. And we pray that you would give us a a deeper trust, a stronger confidence in the Bible. That in the face of opposition, we would look to it and say, yes, there's always been opposition. And it's been proven wrong time and time and time and time again. And over and over again, your word has been proven true. And Father, we thank you that you have given us this sacred text. And I pray that we would would come to you through the pages of the scripture. That as we read, we wouldn't just stop with a head full of Bible knowledge, but that what we read would spark our relationship with you, that we would learn more about you and your will and purpose and plan for us, and that what would be strengthened in that is not just a head full of information, but a heart that is radically in love and devoted to you. We thank you, Father for confirming and preserving your word. In Jesus' name, amen.